Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. Before I get started today, I want to thank you for everything you're doing for kids. I know that these are really tough times, and I hope that each of these podcasts gives you a little pause in the day to hear some really good information and an inspiring conversation, but I hope, if nothing else, it gives you just a little bit of a break. My guest today is Dr. Joanna Quigley. She is a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Michigan. She has also been on faculty at the University of Pittsburgh and trained in pediatrics, general psychiatry, and child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Kentucky. Yes, she is triple boarded. She engages in a number of collaborative efforts to support mental health care in the primary care setting, the care of children with chronic illness and mental health care needs, as well as for adolescents struggling with substance use. Dr. Quigley serves as a consulting child psychiatrist for the MC3 program at the University of Michigan, a child psychiatry access program, and provides outreach support to primary care pediatric, family medicine, and obstetric providers across the state of Michigan. Dr. Quigley was a lead author on the 2019 AAP policy statement, Alcohol Use by Youth. Our conversation today will focus on alcohol use, and I think it is a very enlightening conversation. So whatever you're doing, whether it's walking or just taking a break in the day, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Hey, Joanna, how are you? I'm well, Leah. Thanks for having me back. I am so excited and welcome back um, to this Encore interview. I'm really um, excited to talk about this topic because we haven't really addressed this and it's so common in primary care and probably in any healthcare setting. So we're going to talk about alcohol use in kids and it's a pretty broad topic, but we're going to just dive in. So maybe to start us out, what would you say is the the scope of the problem? Yeah, so I think it's it's easy to forget how common alcohol use still is among kids, and it remains the most commonly used substance by adolescents. So, you know, I think it sometimes gets normalized, or we think about, oh, well, kids just are going to drink in high school, but we need to appreciate the fact that it is the most commonly used drug or substance in this age group, and about 25% of 14 to 15 year olds have you know, reported having at least one drink in the last year. 7 million young people ages 12 to 20 have had beyond just a few sips of alcohol in the last month. And then in the most recent Monitoring the Future data for 2021, which was, was kind of interesting because we saw a decline overall in substance use among all age groups that they look at. And I I think understanding that is going to be really interesting. There was still a significant number of youth using alcohol. So for eighth graders, 17% reported using alcohol in the last year. 
10th graders was almost 29%. And for 12th graders, you were at 46.5%. So still almost half of 12th graders reporting that they had used alcohol in the last year. So when you think about those as big numbers across our country, that's not a small number of kids. And so it helps us frame our thoughts about prevention and intervention for these kids over time. Wow, that is a lot. I guess the positive note is, is half are not using and we have yes. to figure out what, what that is. I wonder right. with the pandemic, just if you know social gatherings are fewer and also if kids are at home more, if they're you know less likely to drink in their parents' home. I don't know. I mean, it will be interesting to see, you know, what, what the reasons are for that. Right. Absolutely. Yep. How much of it was access, how much of it was lack of social gatherings, and then who are the kids where use actually maybe went up because they were isolated at home. And I think understanding that will be really important. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about screening because we're not going to know about use unless we ask. And, you know, I, I know just you know, in talking with people in general, that oftentimes that first sip may come from a parent, you know, you know, it's New Year's Eve, and sure, you can have a little bit of champagne, no big deal, you know, for the 19 year old, like, gee, I'm almost 21, can't I? And I know my kids would probably say I was a pain, but I was kind of like the, I don't know, the rule follower. And that's not to say that my kids did drink because that did happen, but I was doing my darndest. I was certainly trying. But if we're thinking about screening kids, what's your favorite tool that primary care folks can use? Yeah, so one of the most commonly used that I think is still a really good one generally for substance use that can help you capture alcohol use as well as the craft. So that has been validated in adolescents, not just in adults and is a really helpful one to just sort of insert into every well child check. And even a visit where a child might be presenting for what's reported by scheduling as anxiety and depression, you know, if you're able to sort of put in a PHQ-9 and a GAD-7, putting the craft in as well can be a nice way to add in another layer of screening that might help you capture comorbidities that could get missed otherwise. Yeah, I Um, I there's a lot of things I really like about the craft, and I think the um, I think it's the craft 2.0 plus yes. N includes that nicotine vaping. Absolutely. But what I love is on the back of the craft or page two is you know kind of some questions to respond to any of their positive answers, and then also I think what's really impactful is seeing the graph that depending on how many questions you answer, how likely you are to have substance use disorder, which is like so alarming. I mean, if they check four things, I think you have what an 80 plus percent chance of having a substance use disorder. Right. Yep. No, it's really helpful, the modifications that they've done over time. And that is easy to find online and download those cards and just have them in your practice. And, you know, if you're able to build them into your electronic medical record for those alerts for those cutoffs, it can be even more helpful when you're tracking these kids. I did want to mention, too, um, that about, I think it was in 2011, NIAAA working with other agencies within NIH and AAP did publish a guide called Alcohol Screening and Brief Intervention for Youth. And that's a practitioner's guide 
And that is, again, free and downloadable um, at niaa.nih.gov slash youthguide. And this is another really nice way to look more specifically at alcohol use with pretty simple screening. And it is built to be a useful screener for those kids who are 9 to 18 years of age. So it's nice that it captures a broad age range. It has two screening questions to look at use over the past year. And then it helps you break down appropriate ways to ask more questions if they are endorsing some alcohol use, gives you wording for how to approach the questions for sort of a more elementary age versus middle school age versus high school age kid. And similar to what you're describing about the updated craft, it also gives you some parameters for thinking about risk level. So is this a kid who's low, moderate, or high risk? And how should I be thinking about and responding to it? Um, I like that risk level thing because I think it fits kind of our medical model. You know, we talk mm -hmm. about low, moderate, you know, severe risk for, you know, asthma or those right. different presentations. So it's a nice way, I think, for medical folks to conceptualize and, and to kind of be able to craft, sorry, <laughs> craft your intervention around Absolutely. that. Yeah. Boy, it's alarming when you say you screen, you could screen down to age nine. I mean, that's just like, really? Do I have to worry about those young kids? Yeah, I think like any screening around what we consider high-risk behaviors, the more normalized it is at a younger age and the more routine it becomes in your practice, I think the better we're able to capture these behaviors. And as you said, you will encounter kids who just took sips at home, even without their parents knowing because they walked by a can of beer or they noticed there was still a little bit of wine left in a bottle. And it is remarkable sometimes when we take histories with adolescents who now are 14, 15, 16, and they will share with us that they started kind of trying sips of alcohol around age nine or 10. Wow. Um, I did want to mention too the screening to brief intervention tool that is also out there and that is also free and online. And that includes questions about all substances or, you know, substance types that includes alcohol. And again, you can go online, enter these responses either as a patient or as a clinician guided set of questions, and it will break down severity concern and give you prompts for intervention as well. So that's a really helpful resource. Are any more of these, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask, are any of these tools, so they're free and we'll include yes. links in the show notes. Yes. Do any yeah. of them come in other languages? That is a great question. And I believe several of them do. I, I know that the uh, craft does, and I would have to go in and look at whether the screening to brief intervention tool has translation functions. I'm not sure. Great question. Okay. Yeah, I can yeah. look into that. So somebody asked me about something else, and I, I want to remember to, you know, find those tools that are useful across populations. Yes. yes, absolutely. Yeah, because cultural context matters as well. And I did want to mention finally that that Dr. Sharon Levy, who's in, in Boston and colleagues have published a lot around substance use screening and intervention, but they recently... Uh, looked at, you know, how simple can we make questions and still capture concerning use? And they did look at a few different questions around alcohol use in adolescents over the past three months. And 
you know, I think they'll probably be able to describe more data around this in the future, but they were able to find that asking just how many days did you have a drink of alcohol over the last three months can be a helpful indicator of concerning use. So even phrasing one question, if there's one thing that you can remember to ask, that that can be a way to start that conversation with youth. Maybe it's better than, you know, have you used alcohol? You know, it, yes. it gives it more of a, a frame. I, yeah, I yeah. like that. And, and like I said, we'll make sure that we include these links because they're really, really great. So, you know, we were talking about, you know, the introductory sip that becomes, you know, partying, which often includes binge drinking. So what's the, what's the definition of binge drinking and when do we worry about, oh, it's just normal teen behavior or is it? Yeah, so I think this is a really important topic to bring up because, you know, even though we might have seen trends around general alcohol use go down over the last several decades, we have seen persistence of binge drinking. And one trend that we've seen as well that has been quite concerning is a shift from lower binge drinking rates in girls that has now shifted to a higher binge drinking rate, and they may actually be surpassing the binge drinking rate of boys. And I say that to help us think about all of the biases we might have when we're seeing patients and thinking about who should we be, quote, worried about, and just remembering that, you know, these aren't, it's not just sort of teenage boys who are being rebellious and binge drinking, that binge drinking is a problem for girls as well. And I think, you know, it's interesting to think about, too, as in the press, there's been a lot more attention recently given to problematic drinking in in adult women as well, particularly during the pandemic and how normalized it's been to cope by drinking. And so I mentioned that just as we think about women's health and and health of our, our girls as they're growing up. So getting back to the definition of binge drinking, so this has been sort of traditionally thought about as how much alcohol exposure is going to create a blood alcohol concentration of 0.08%. And the definition has been really centered around adults. So for adults, four or more drinks in a woman, five or more drinks for a man in two hours time. And I want to acknowledge too that all of this data was described in, in those who are you know, natal female and natal woman identified in studies over time. So we're speaking in generalizations. And they often use this two-hour framework, but everybody metabolizes alcohol differently. And of course, youth metabolize alcohol differently as well. And so it it takes fewer drinks, and we should probably think about binge drinking uh, amounts for girls around three drinks in a very short period of time, and for boys, three to five drinks, depending on their age and size. And within that, context, we also have to remember that what is a drink? So, you know, the volume of a, a beer can or a glass of wine can, can vary tremendously now. I also want to comment that there's so many new products out there when it comes to alcohol containing drinks, right? So there's all these seltzers now, there's so many fruit flavored drinks that actually have quite a bit of liquor in them. So even as parents and providers, being aware that when we ask about what they're drinking, the variety of products out there now is tremendous. It's a really good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about, you know, that, I mean, certainly, you know, the difference between, you know, a a beer and a shot of vodka, but the, the beer alcohol content varies hugely. Right. Especially with the trends in microbrews and uh, higher alcohol content beers, which have been more, more common 
recently. Yeah. Yeah. So I forget, I, there was one other question I wanted to ask about screening. When you do it, do you prefer to ask the patient yourself or do you prefer a patient to do the questionnaire themselves either on paper or on a, you know, a kiosk or iPad? Yeah, it that's makes a great a difference. I do. I think it's like screening for depression and anxiety that if you don't do it both ways, you may miss somebody, right? So there are the kids that won't answer a question honestly in your conversation because they feel embarrassed or shy or they don't feel comfortable, but they're more than happy to answer that question on a piece of paper or on a tablet. So I'm lucky enough to work in a practice where that is all built into our electronic medical record and I can make sure the patient is assigned that questionnaire at the time of their visit or beforehand. Uh, but I do think even if they say zero, 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 zero on the craft that I'm still asking, I noticed you said no to all of these, but I'm wondering if there's any use that I should know about. Oh, that's a, that's a great way to phrase. So what, what's your strategy if they say yes? I mean, when do you worry? What's the kind of counseling and when do you disclose to a parent? Yeah. So, you know, I think that it's really important to acknowledge how glad you are that they've shared with you. So, you know, those sort of strength-based approaches that really acknowledge that, you know, I know it's hard to talk about this sometimes, or you might be worried about sharing this information. The other approach I will also take is sort of saying, you know, I know you, you mentioned you use cannabis, and a lot of people think that, you know, this is no big deal, but it is a really big deal to me. And I think that it's really important that we talk about it. So, we're focusing on alcohol today, Leah, which has been kind of normalized and sort of brushed off as sort of part of being a teenager for years. But I think cannabis is entering that space now too. So when somebody says, yes, I've been drinking or I've had a drink, I really want to understand how much they're drinking. You know, how many drinks are you having when you drink? How many days of the week is that? Are you drinking on your own? Are you only drinking with friends when you're drinking are you blacking out or are you losing control of the situation? Have you forgotten what happened when you were drinking? And I do like to ask kind of a very loose trauma screening question. You know, have, have you had concerns that something, you know, happened to you while you were intoxicated that you were not aware of that you did not consent for? Because you will um, sometimes miss an opportunity to screen for assault or trauma when you're having these conversations around alcohol use. You know, the craft asks similar questions, but understanding if they've reached a stage where they've been driving while intoxicated or if they've driven with friends while intoxicated is just such an important safety question to ask. And then, of course, with my mental health lens, I'm also thinking about, okay, you're drinking. How are you doing in terms of depression and anxiety symptoms? Because my other worry is that if they're drinking and they're dealing with feelings of being really down, they will be potentially more likely to act on any kind of ideation to self-harm or even to attempt suicide. Yeah. So they're less inhibited. They're, they're more likely to follow through with something. So I'm thinking about all these layers of risk. And that helps inform my decision about what I'm sharing with parents. So how much are they drinking? How much is it affecting their lives? Is it affecting their ability to get schoolwork done, to get to school, for example? Those are all big red flags for me. And when I talk to parents, if there's low-level use, 
there's less concern about safety and I'm trying to kind of walk that line between confidentiality and what to share with parents, one approach I've taken is to make very general statements about keeping a home safer for an adolescent. And I will say things like, you know, when I speak to families for a teen who's struggled with depression and anxiety, when I think about safety, these are all the things I think about. And you might consider, you know, these to be things to to address in your home. So securing over-the-counter medications, securing your prescription medications, having the conversation around gun safety. But in that whole conversation mentioning, I think it would be a good idea to secure the alcohol in your home. And sometimes I also am saying if anyone is using cannabis products, you should secure those as well because many people are using different forms of cannabis products routinely as well. That is great advice and such great phrasing. I, I love that. I, I think the that general safety is a really that's a really smart approach. And you've touched on cannabis a little bit. And I want listeners to know, stay tuned because there's another episode coming up on cannabis following this one. And because that's a whole nother a whole nother bag, right? Bad pun. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so is there any data when looking at kids about who's most likely to go on to have substance use disorder or alcoholism? Yeah, so there is some data, and I, I want to make a few points around that. But again, start with thinking about our own biases. And, you know, I will hear sometimes when I'm doing MC3 consultations, the very well-meaning comment, well, like, they're just a great kid from a good family. And so, you know, I don't think X, Y, and Z is going on. And I just want to say to everybody that, you know, alcohol use and, you know, developing an alcohol use disorder transcends class, race, cultural background, educational achievement, where you're living, whether you're in a rural setting or a a very urban setting. So just to, to kind of check our biases at the door and, you know, that routine screening helps us to, to remove some of those biases, but that we just need to remember that risk is, is omnipresent. We do worry more, for example, when there's a clear family history of substance use disorders, but that can't be what I hang my hat on because there's so much stigma around substance use disorders and alcohol use disorder and a family may not disclose to you for years. Well, actually, to be honest, you know, Joe's grandmother really struggled with alcohol use and we just didn't talk about it. So, you know, I think that is one thing to think about. I I do worry more about youth who may be more marginalized. There is some more data, for example, that LGBTQIA youth or homeless youth are going to be at greater risk for alcohol use and substance use disorders over time because of uh, trauma they've experienced and other risk factors they experience that compromise their their abilities to, to manage mental health and to cope. I would say, you know, really important points to take home as we talked about, you know, being permissive or sort of having sips of alcohol at an early age. We know that the earlier someone uses alcohol, the greater they're using alcohol. In other words, the greater amount of alcohol they're using, the greater their risk for substance use, alcohol use disorder as an adult. So, there's this really clear connection. And, you know, understanding that is something that a lot of really smart people have been looking at, you know, what are we, are we turning on and off genes? Are we impacting the very uh, dynamic process of brain development that's going on during this period of time in such a way that that vulnerability kind of green light is turned on and, and that's what's creating the risk. But 
the big picture take home is the younger they're using, the heavier amounts they're using, the greater that risk is over time. Yeah, and I, I am thinking as you're talking about our messaging to parents mm-hmm. is really, you know, that no use is is really the best advice. Yep. And I love what you said about saying to a kid, you know, maybe folks may not think this is a big deal, but it's a big deal to me. And here's right. reasons why, because right. we may be, you know, we're, we're a, an objective person. We're not a parent saying, oh, you're bad doing that, but you're just saying, this worries me. And here's why. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I like that kind of frame for that. And you mentioned earlier the kind of the interplay between substance use and mental health disorders. And I, I guess for me, I'm like thinking chicken egg, you know, which came first, the depression yeah. and then the drinking or the drinking and the depression or right. can you, can you sort it out? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think when we look at kids and adolescents, our, we, our framework is that comorbidity is the rule rather than the exception. And what I mean by that is, You know, sometimes when we think about adult treatment programs, it will just be alcohol treatment or dual diagnosis. You'll hear that language. But when I think about kids, my, if they're presenting with substance use concern, I'm, my assumption is that there's a depression, a mood disorder, an anxiety disorder. There's ADHD. There's, there's been other things that have been going on and brewing and this substance use has tipped tipped that scale and there very much is an interplay. And what I mean by that is when you speak to adolescents about why they're drinking or say why they're smoking cannabis, you know, they'll tell you, oh, well, it's really helping my mood or it's the only way I can manage my anxiety or it's the only way I can sleep. And those are real gems in terms of opportunities to talk about what's really going on for their their brain and their mind when they're using and actually know you think it's helping your mood, but it's creating these downturns with your mood once you stop using or the next morning. And that's giving you a setup to feel like you, you might maybe should just drink again or smoke again, that it can actually worsen the pathways or, or strengthen the pathways that are triggered that reinforce your anxious thoughts and those anxious feelings. It does look like similar to adults, some kids with social anxiety may be more susceptible to substance use. And we don't know whether that is simply a, a behavioral component of, for example, using because it helps them feel more comfortable and open up in social situations. But that is sort of a narrative I will hear sometimes in clinic. And I, I don't want to be dismissive either of emerging data around, for example, those who are on the autism spectrum and the fact that we know that that doesn't mean you're you know, not going to deal with a substance use disorder. And that can be you know, a very complex case to address sometimes when there are several comorbidities at play. One question I get asked, Leah, from primary care when it comes to the chicken and egg issue and treatment and then substance use is around ADHD and should I stop any stimulant because they're drinking or smoking. And I really like to point out the fact that treating ADHD effectively during these years of childhood and adolescence appears to be protective for many in terms of you know, trajectory to some significant substance use as an adult. So again, it's, it can be a very nuanced approach because you don't want to set up increased risk factors for a child or adolescent who then might misuse their stimulant, but 
if you're able to monitor, meet with the kid regularly, there can very much be a role for still treating this ADHD with a stimulant, even if there is some degree of substance use going on. They're engaged in treatment around that too. You've raised some really good points. I wanted to just briefly touch on what you said about autism spectrum disorders. I did a really nice podcast with Susan Hyman about autism. And she talked a lot about these myths that we have, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't have, you know, if you have autism spectrum disorder, you know, you could have anxiety and we're not thinking about, you know, treat, I mean, there are core symptoms, but then there's this other stuff. It doesn't exclude that. Right. Like, you know, suicidal ideation. So that's a really important point. So, and then you were talking about treatment of ADHD. So that brings me to substance use treatment, you know, and at least for here, you and I are both in Michigan. I mean, I don't know that there are alcohol treatment centers in in the state for kids, you know, for you, for adult, they're detox. But what do you do if you have a kid who you're really worried about is having significant use? Yeah. Yeah. So that can be very challenging depending on where you live. So you're asking about the patient for whom your, you know, approaches with maybe motivational interviewing in the office and sort of trying to follow them more, more regularly have not worked out and they have escalated in their use and you're really worried about, about safety. So, you know, one thing that I'm always thinking about is, is there enough of a safety concern around suicidality or the depression that what they actually need is a psychiatric hospitalization before working towards a residential stay around their substance use? So, Adolescents typically, and I say typically in very general terms, don't need a medically-based detox for their alcohol use. And I I don't want to disregard the fact that there can be exceptions to that. But we're really more often looking at residential treatment as a very intensive way to treat the mental health comorbidity, the substance use, removing them from their home environment to get them away from the triggers for use and providing them with you know chance to to have a period of sustained sobriety so there are some helpful resources out there occasionally there are folks who are actually consultants that you can find who will help match families with residential and long-term programs i want to point out that there is the um, national helpline with samsa So SAMHSA.gov has a national helpline, and that is one way to be connected with resources. So they are keeping a national database of substance use treatment providers, whether that's at a clinic level or a residential level. In between that, you will find sort of partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient level programs who either are focusing just on substance use or who are willing to care for kids who are dealing with depression and anxiety and substance use, you know, so they're willing to look at both pieces. Kind of unfortunate that it gets parsed out into, like, we're going to treat your, just your mental illness, but we can't do, you know, we can't talk about your substance use except in the context. And that's unfortunate. I know that happens in the adult world. I mean, how do you, I guess I'm thinking about like outpatient mental health. If I send somebody to a therapist, are most therapists, trained in that? Is that part of their routine or do we need to look for somebody who has a specialty in that? I I would say many therapists have some knowledge of motivational interviewing as a way to enhance, you know, movement toward change. However, 
if use is significant, I do think it's beneficial to seek out a therapist who has specific training in the care of those with substance use disorders, not only for, you know, that specialized knowledge and the fact that it may be a way to ensure more success for your child, but also because they will understand the risks around use, perhaps in a more um, a deeper way that will help flag a kid who really needs a higher level of care faster, right? And so we really want to make sure we don't miss a kid who's at risk of, from a safety standpoint, or who's, at, who's escalated from alcohol use to other substances and is at a real risk of overdose. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, our abilities that I think we probably underestimate the power of our impact just by starting yes. with that. This is a big deal to me you know, and talking about, I know with the craft, there are those kind of, I can't remember what the, but like the five R's or something like that about like scripting for how to support a a kid and kind of the language around how to talk about that. Absolutely. And the other guides I mentioned uh, help prompt with that language too. And I know the expert trainings have helped with that as well from the AAP. So yeah, do not underestimate the impact you can have, you know, just setting short-term goals with a patient and saying, you know, I'd really like to see you back in two weeks. And I'm wondering if we can think together about how many days that 14-day stretch you can try and stay away from, from alcohol. And just to, to remember, too, that family-based work is often essential when we're addressing substance use disorders in adolescents. So that is a big component of the care. But also that, you know, 12-step programs are not for everybody, but there are often, depending on where you live, a teen-based or a teen-oriented 12-step group that a teen can attend. And always, of course, Al-Anon for parents and family members, excuse me, to support them in this journey of sort of understanding what's going on with their teen and how to get more support from other parents. There are secular uh, groups that are sort of modeled on 12-step that identifies a little bit differently. Um, for example, Smart Recovery is one of those groups, and that's something that you can Google and go to their website and find out more about whether there's any program locally for, for your patients. And you, you touched on something about family-based, and I was also thinking about your question about family history. What if the family history is you know, my husband has a drinking problem. I, right. I mean, or, or the parent or the, the kid disposes, my mom drinks too much. I right. Mean, how do you, how do you address that? Yeah. So that can be very tough and yet it can be essential to really helping guide the, the treatment of the child as well. <clears throat> so I think, you know, trying to bring up in ways that don't feel sort of like an attack, but you know, I can imagine it's challenging, say, if you're speaking to that, that parent, I can imagine it's really hard to watch your child now struggle with some alcohol use when I know that your husband has been struggling with that as well. I'm wondering how he's doing and what support he might need. And then having that SAMHSA number or website or your own local resources available to say, maybe it would help you to go to Al-Anon, here's some resources for dad. I'm concerned about your child's success in sobriety or at least reducing their use if folks are still using in the household. Yeah, those are those are great points. I it's funny, kind of the longer I was in practice, the more I don't know, I just quit being scared about talking about things. And sometimes I I remember a conversation like, you know, your your daughter shared with me that she really worries about you 
exactly. drinking. And I, I worry about how that might be for her. And, and, you know, and people can get defensive about it for sure. Right. Um, and, you know, I think you can always come back with, that's just her experience. You know, it's absolutely. hard for her. She's worried about you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a very, uh, it's a very important reminder that you might be the one space where that child feels safe expressing that worry and acknowledging what's going on at home. Yeah. Yeah. Such a, such a tough thing. And, you know, I think, you know, like you mentioned, it's so ubiquitous and it's just part of our, our celebratory culture, you know, right. and, and, and it is normalized as an adult behavior, but you know, that trickle down to kids and as adults in kids environment, I think we have to be careful about how we look at that, you know, do we use it? And I mean, I know I've said, oh, you know, you know, do we get a cocktail with that? And, right. You know, it's a joke. Right. That. But on the other hand is the message I'm giving to somebody like, gosh, if I'm having a really hard time, you know, maybe having a shot of vodka would help. Right. Exactly. I think, you know, reflecting on our behaviors, how we demonstrate coping, and that can be another way to bring it up with a family where you're worried that the parents might be drinking a lot or the the kid is worried about that to say it sounds like there may be a lot of stress that you're experiencing as a family or I know there's been a recent job loss. I know your daughter has been worried that maybe you've been drinking more or dad's been drinking more. And another sort of turnaround to that or flip side of that is that there is data that parents clearly expressing that they don't think that underage drinking is okay and being consistent in that message is protective. You know, so walking that line of making sure your your kids know that they can talk to you about things like, you know, drinking that's going on either for themselves or their friends, but not being permissive about it. So, you know, when I was growing up, there were parents who thought, well, if you guys have a party at our house, it'll be safer because you're drinking here and then I know where you are. Yeah, I um, definitely heard that when my kids right? were in high school. Yeah, exactly. So that is not, according to the data, we have the right approach that even if you think you're protecting your kid by the fact that they're not driving home from someone else's house, it is sending a message that that alcohol use and what's often binge drinking is okay. I, I remember a conversation that I, a very uncomfortable conversation that I had with a parent. You know, again, it's probably the cringe moment for my kids, like saying to a parent, you know, you probably didn't know, but it really worried me that, you know, at the bonfire, which for me, bonfires is a trigger word, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, it's mm -hmm. like, mm, think about that. But, you know, at the bonfire, you know, there was some, there was some drinking going on. And, you know, I think sometimes parents don't even know that the kids have, you know, they didn't provide it, but, you know, the kids, other kids brought it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and having to sort of police that a little bit, but it's a lot easier if you have parents that are willing to kind of set common goals, you know, amongst themselves. And, you know, maybe that's a conversation people need to have with other parents, you know, like, Right. This is, right. You know, what, what's acceptable and what, what isn't, but that can be a tough. And the, the other comment you made about, you know, well, he's a good kid. I remember being in a group long time, I think when my daughter was 14 and, you know, somebody making the comment, well, our kids wouldn't do that. And it was like, I don't, don't bet the ranch on that one. Exactly. They're, they're kids. And yeah. So well, listen, this has been super helpful. And you've mentioned several um, resources, and I know you've authored several papers. Are there just a couple 
you know, just, and, and I'll make sure I include a list of those in the show notes, but are there a couple that you were like, these are like absolute musts? Yeah. So I think, you know, when you're having these conversations uh, with families and patients, just to really remember that developmental piece, you know, that when you're a, a child and an adolescent, there's so much going on with brain development that, you know, every day that your brain is not exposed to alcohol or other substances is a day that your brain can grow in as healthy a way as possible. And that, you know, when you screen routinely, when you make this sort of part of your care routinely, that it can help both you and your patients to make sure that you're not missing things, that you're making sure it's communicated that substance use is something that's important for us to talk about and that that you worry about. And that more globally, understanding how your patients are coping with stress and the stress, how your their families are, can be another way to talk about the impacts of substance use and how it can elevate risk factors around safety. Yeah, and 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 I think you know, sort of the bottom line is we just have to ask. But as always with all screening, if you're going to ask, you need to have some preparation for what to yes. do. So yep. I think, and hopefully this conversation will spur some people to think about, you know, what do I provide? What messaging am I giving kids? So even though it may not be a big overhaul of your practice, maybe there's some pearls here just in your own language that you could start Absolutely. with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you've given us great scripting and I really appreciate all the work that you do. And, you know, and, and I love what you said about every day that your brain is not exposed to alcohol is better for your brain. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that is a really brilliant comment. I love that. Well, thank you so much. And, and again, thank you for the, for the work you do. And I'm so glad that you're a child psychiatrist and a pediatrician. I mean, it's just such a, a great balance and insight. And I really am grateful for the work that you do. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Leah. It's my pleasure. Well, I think this was a really important conversation and so much good information. So here are my takeaways. Number one. First, thank you so much to Dr. Quigley for all the work that she is doing for kids and for pediatricians. Number two, alcohol use is common and it's normalized, and we all know that. This is a problem for kids. There are 7 million kids, 12 to 20 years, who have used alcohol in the past month. Those numbers are just staggering. Number three, the CRAFT is a free evidence-based tool that is available in many languages. I checked it out, and there really are a lot of language options. It is often used with a group of tools, for example, the PHQ, the GAD-7, and the Ask Suicide Screening Questionnaire. And when you do those screens together, you can really gather a lot of information about a teen pretty easily, and I think pretty accurately most of the time. Number four. Dr. Quigley feels that administering the questionnaires, both in written, so on paper, tablet, online, and verbally, is helpful to get the most information. And I thought that was really helpful. I was thinking, you know, you might get the information, you know, on a questionnaire that they do. But then she talked about going back and asking specifically, I just wanted to follow up and has there been any use of alcohol in the past month? Number five kids are all great. The myth of the, quote, great kid who doesn't use is faulty. Don't assume. Ask. Substance use disorder transcends it all. Race, ethnicity, religion, gender, 
socioeconomic status, sexual identity, all of it. Number six, binge drinking is that which would get you to 0.08% blood alcohol level. And for girls, three to four drinks in two hours. And for males, three to five drinks in two hours will oftentimes get you there. What they are drinking matters. And I think we have to, you know, consider craft beers and all of the seltzers and ciders, all the things. You know, a Coors Light versus a shot of vodka will make a difference. So you need to specifically ask what are they drinking, how much, and what time frame to really get a sense of risk. Number seven, Dr. Quigley used some really nice phrasing. I am so glad you shared this with me. I noticed that you use X number of drinks every X days or weeks. And I know sometimes people think that it isn't a big deal, but it is a big deal to me. And here's why. She really stressed that our opinion as healthcare providers matters more than you might think. And this is honestly so true for everything. What we say carries a lot of weight. Number eight, always consider comorbidity with drinking as the rule versus the exception. Always think about depression, anxiety, especially social anxiety, and trauma. Another scripting, has anything bad ever happened to you when you were drunk, is another way to elicit some information. And I always would caution kids, especially when they're going off to college, that if you are drinking, and I would recommend that you don't, but if you happen to be at a party and you're drinking, don't ever leave anyone alone because bad things happen to to people when they're drunk, particularly women. But again, I think the message is don't drink. Number nine, treat mental health conditions like ADHD and anxiety well, because it may actually prevent substance use disorder. And I think we all worry about the kid who might be diverting their ADHD meds or inappropriately using them. But Dr. Quigley made the point that for kids who have untreated ADHD, they may be at higher risk of substance use, so something to keep in mind. Number 10, kids who experience homelessness, trauma, or identify as LGBTQ are at higher risk of alcohol use. For the LGBTQ population, it is because of the stigma and the struggle that may be associated with their identification and how they are accepted socially that is the risk factor versus just their LGBTQ status in and of itself. Number 11, treatment begins with you and motivational interviewing. Praise, recommend, or ask for a trial of sobriety, and schedule frequent visits. For higher-risk kids or, you know, when you're really worried, and that would be use that's affecting function, you might want to consider a therapist who has substance use training. There are also 12-step programs for teens in some areas. She stressed that hospitalization for detox in teens is really less likely to be needed, which is a good thing because there are so few options, but there may be partial programs or intensive outpatient programs that are accessible. Number 12, remind parents to model behaviors and to give consistent messaging that any alcohol use is too much. So really discourage those, you know, sips at New Year's Eve. If a parent has their own drinking concerns, bring it up in a non-judgmental way. And we talked about that on the podcast interview. Number 13, I've got lots of resources in the show notes. Uh, there are references to SBIRT, AAP policies and clinical reports, the SAMHSA helpline, and NIAA information, as well as the CRAFT link. 
Number 14, the goal is no use. And I love this phrasing. Every day your brain is not exposed to alcohol is a better day for your brain. It's brilliant. It's simple. Thanks so much for listening. And I really appreciate the time that you take to tune in. I hope that you will rate and share because having listeners is really what keeps me going. And I really would love to hear from you. If you want to contact me at gaginoel at medicalbhs.com, I would love to hear your suggestions and look out for some upcoming things so I can really get to know you better. There will be an opportunity to do a online interview and we can do a deep dive into how your practice might be functioning. So if you're interested in being a guest, send me a message. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.